Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. What's up, everyone? And welcome to episode 125 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, serving as the Gertie to my Sam, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello, Sam. <laughs> this week kicks off Sci-Fi September, where we are talking through four of our favorite sci-fi movies. Along with that, we want you guys to be on the lookout for some other minisodes featuring a Steven Spielberg conversation uh, on one of his movies and an interview with Mark O'Connell talking about his new book, Watching Skies, colon, Star Wars, Spielberg, and Us. We wanted to make sure he didn't, you didn't know that he wrote three different books. That's just one, but it's supposed to be really good, and we're hoping to check it out. First on our list, we tackle the 2009 Duncan Jones-directed cerebral sci-fi film Moon, starring Sam Rockwell and, well, yeah, Sam Rockwell. I mean, <laughs> how can a movie starring one guy be so good? Stick around to find out more here in a few minutes. Uh, but for now, Aaron, what have you been doing over the last week? Yeah, thanks for asking, buddy. Well, this last week, I actually launched a second podcast under the Feelin' Film brand, and this is called By Request. What this show is, is it is myself as the only host. I am doing this solo style, and I will be talking about movies directly after watching them in about 30-minute or less bite-sized fare. This will be me going over some connecting points and emotional things that I pull out of a film. I'll be talking through it, trying to figure it out as I go. And it's pretty entertaining, actually. I have been adding some sound bits as I can to these to mix it up a little bit so it's not just my voice. But what these are is a way for me to give an initial reaction to a film. I don't get to go quite as in-depth as I would if you and I were having a deeper conversation about themes. But it's one of those, this is how you walk out of a movie feeling kind of things. And so it's been a lot of fun so far. What we do is we have a nomination list for films and our listeners can go into the Feel and Film Facebook group. And at the top of the group, there is a post they can put their nominated films in. I will pick five of those via random generator and they will vote. So they voted on this group of five and they came out with uh, the movie Hot Rod as my first listener chosen episodes. That was a lot of fun. I just recorded that earlier today. But if you go to the By Request podcast on iTunes or Google Play, it's up now. You can download that new episode. You can download an episode on The Last Five Years, which is a musical with Anna Kendrick and Jeremy Jordan, and then parts one and two of Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill as well. Those are all on Netflix. Well, Hot Rod's not, but the first uh, two episodes on The Last Five Years and Kill Bill are on Netflix, so you can watch those before listening to the podcast because it is also spoiler just like this one. Also releasing this week is a movie called Searching, and I don't know if you've seen me talking about this one yet or not, but I am a big, big fan. Uh, so much a fan that our contributor Don Shanahan and I came home after seeing it, got on the mics, and recorded a mini-so that is out now. So not only am I saying listen to that, but you got to go see the movie to do so. And frankly, this is a film that deserves your attention and it deserves your money. It is an indie movie that was made from a director named Anish Shiganti, who previously has only made short films on YouTube. And the hook is that this film is made entirely using digital screens. So think something like the movie Unfriended only ratcheted up a few notches. 
it's incredibly intriguing and it is well done. It is so fascinating to see how he edited this and used iPhone and iPad and GPS and television footage, all of the security cameras even, all seamlessly mixed together to make this really immersive experience. It's a thriller with a mystery. A dad is searching for his missing daughter, but it's very emotional in nature as well. And it has what I think is the best score of the year so far. So there are a lot of reasons to go see this one. And I hopefully... Listeners, if it's playing anywhere near you, you will make your way to a theater and see this and then check out our episode afterwards, of course. Absolutely. And I'm hoping to check it out myself as soon as it hits theaters here in the natural state, which is quite literally hit or miss. And uh, so hopefully it'll be a hit. Well, I actually got a chance to watch a movie last week. Um, I've been kind of out of the loop over the last several, just being busy with uh, with my job and stuff going on with the family. But uh, I got a chance to sit down being out of town and watch um, Borg versus McEnroe, a 2017 biopic that I got to say is biopic in the loosest of sense. Um, when I when I finished the movie, I couldn't help but make comparisons to I, Tonya, and in both positive and negative ways. I'll use the negative first. It's not we have the conversation all the time about biopics. We've had it about the greatest showman. We've had it about Rudy and the conversation will probably never get old because we always bring the point up that, Hey, does it diminish the value of a movie because things aren't historically accurate? Well, things like I, Tanya and now Borg versus McEnroe really give merit to the fact that movies as entertainment is really the primary reason that we watch. We don't watch to be educated. We watch to be entertained. And if education comes from that, fantastic. Uh, I think a lot of times it is a, a, a great side thing that happens, probably naturally. But in this case, I think it's pure entertainment. And that's really the biggest positive I can give it is that it's just a lot of fun to watch. As a movie, you have these two characters. If you're not familiar with these two people, uh, Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe. They're a couple of pretty famous tennis players who meet at Wimbledon in the early 1980s. I don't remember the exact year. Bjorn Borg is going for his fifth Wimbledon title, and John McEnroe is the up-and-coming, I guess, rookie sensation. It's number one versus number two. And that's not a spoiler because obviously the whole movie leads up to this moment, so I'm not really spoiling much. (laughs) What I won't say is how impressed I was and how engulfed I was in the path that both of these individuals got to that final and the way in which this creative team narrates each of their stories and shows their similarities and contrast because to the world, both of these guys were equal opposites. You've got Bjorn Borg, who is the stoic, no emotion, all business tennis player. And you've got John McEnroe, who will drop an F-bomb if he hears pigeons in the stadium. I don't know if those things are true. They're depicted in the movie, but (laughs) I don't know if they're true. What I will say is that the performances by the two leads, uh, Shia LaBeouf plays John McEnroe, and say what you will about him offline, off camera. He is kind of nuts, but his performance in this is incredibly uh, entertaining he he plays John McEnroe as a charismatic, over-the-top guy. And 
I know that John McEnroe possessed some of those character traits, even if they weren't all there. I think Shia LaBeouf plays at the very least a caricature of him. Um, The guy that plays Bjorn Borg, I'm going to butcher his name and I apologize, but I think it's Severer Goodnesson, who's (laughs) obviously not from around these parts, but he... Not Arkansan. He's yeah, he's not he's not from Arkansas. I don't maybe think he's, he's really Borg. Maybe <laughs> he's Lacutus and Borg. <laughs> Something like that. That would be but, a good movie, right? McEnroe yeah, versus the actual Borg. See, this is what I'm saying. If there was a YouTube tribute or a YouTube short film called Borg versus McEnroe, the real story, and uh-huh. it was like the Borg from Star Trek versus John McEnroe just swearing at them and throwing his racket, that would be amazing i bet this exists we'll have to google it when we get done i hope so um but both of these guys they really never interact until the final match so we never get to see them back and forth with each other but watching them against their contrasting characters is a lot of fun and it's really really good so i would recommend it for pure entertainment value for story value for narrative wouldn't necessarily recommend it if you're trying to do an essay on the 1980s Wimbledon match because you might get a few things wrong. Um, I will say this, some of the cool stuff you find out during the, during the movie, it's historical stuff is that they actually became friends later in life. And I believe Bjorn Borg was McEnroe's best man or vice versa. And Bjorn Borg, this is a huge accomplishment. Um, he actually retired at the age of 26. I, I never think of tennis players as young people they are and i know that i see their birthdays on tv i'm watching the u.s open right now and i'm like oh yeah these guys are in their you know early 20s and they're definitely younger than me but it's like when i watch college football i will always think that i'm the same age as these college football players because they always look so like adult to me they look like professionals tennis players are completely like in that same realm where they're they're gonna feel like they're they're my age but they're my age like right now like all tennis players are in their 30s nobody's young but to know that Bjorn Borg retired at the age of 26 or 27 just blows my mind, not only because he was young, but because if anybody's able to retire from something that they accomplished like five championships mm-hmm. in one in one tournament, that's pretty amazing. So go see this. I think it's I believe it's on HBO Go. Nice. And uh, it's it's worth checking out. Well, I'm jealous. I wish I could have retired at 26. I'll take 46 even. Honestly, at this point, I'll, Let's I'll take plan it. On it. Let's just, plan uh, on it. You and me, we'll, we'll retire at 45, <laughs> having a successful podcast and lots of... Uh, I was going to say, not if I have to win five Wimbledons between now and then. That might yeah. be a tall order. But, Maybe settle uh, for the local like YMCA tournament or something like that. Hey, <laughs> I, could, I could arrange that. And I yeah. could probably fix it too. Um, okay, well, I <laughs> will definitely be checking this one out. So I'll let you know what I think about it because I'm a sports guy and I love sports biopics. And I've been wanting to see it. So thanks for the recommendation. A couple quick announcements before we move on, or one actual quick announcement before we move on. And that is voting for our Sci-Fi September Donor Pick episode is now underway. Patrons are choosing between five Spielberg sci-fi films. This worked out perfectly because we only have five of his sci-fi films left that we haven't covered. So there we go. And uh, we are going to discuss one of them with author Mark O'Connell, mentioned earlier, later in the month. Those five are Close Encounters of the Third Kind, AI, Minority Report, War of the Worlds, and E.T. 
You can visit patreon.com slash feelinfilm to become a supporter, and for even just $1 a month, you can participate in this and future episode voting. You have until September the 10th to participate in this particular poll. So go ahead, check it out. You can find a link in the show notes. And uh, if you would love to support us, we would be happy for that. And uh, we'd like to have your participation in the polls as well, because it's more fun the more votes we get. Great. Thanks, Aaron. And with that being said, we are now officially in spoiler territory. So if you are one of the unlucky people that has not seen this movie, not only so you can engage in this conversation, but also that can enjoy a movie like this, please go check it out and then come back and join us as we dive in. I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with my one word takeaway, if I may. Absolutely. It's three letters. Pretty simple. Three letters, two of them the same, kind of like our Sam Bell. It's wow. Like, wow. And the thing is, I've seen a lot of movies utilizing one person who plays two people. Army Hammer comes to mind for The Social Network. And when you convince me as an audience that I am watching not only two distinctly different performances from one person, but seeing those two different performances interacting with each other, that's pretty incredible. I mean, Sam Rockwell has got major acting chops. I fell in love with him in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I love, love, love his his comedy. I think he's got some great, great comedy chops. Seeing him in this just elevates him as an actor, knowing that he's got some more serious bones in him, uh, even though we see some of that, that comedy come out. But for me, I love the fact that this movie exists this kind of cerebral sci-fi it's raw and human and exploration of the big idea that it's presenting around defining who we are and what that means for ourselves and when i saw this the first time i was really surprised because i didn't really know what to expect i put myself in a position of like okay this is about a guy on a space station. I guess it's Castaway because he's the only guy out there. But then we start getting the reveal that he's not who we think he is and that he's fighting this loneliness and he's fighting this sense of trying to figure out who he is after realizing that he's not what he seems. And I love the fact that we have more movies like this. I don't know if Moon kicked it off. I think we've had those before. But fitting this in the same genre as things like Ex Machina and Arrival, I think it's one of those that every person who enjoys good drama and good exploration about ourselves needs to watch. And that's what I think really good cerebral sci-fi is, is it allows us to ask those questions about who we are as human beings within the framework of things that may or may not be so out of reach in terms of emerging technology or what the future's like. And and Moon does that. Moon puts us just out of reach on what the world could be like in the future, but that's not what it's trying to explore. It uses it as a backdrop. And I think that's very, very clever. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that is a great one word takeaway for this movie. I, I felt much the same way. I could have easily used the same word. But the one that I chose is identity. And I didn't want to do it because we've talked about this topic a lot recently, and it's been in different contexts, though, as it is here. 
that is the number one theme that's being explored in this movie. There's one phenomenal scene that really hammered home the emotional weight of the two Sams trying to reconcile that they are cloned and this idea of identity. And that's when one Sam, one Sam, Sam one lashes out angrily at Sam two. And he says, I'm the original Sam. I'm effing Sam Bell. Me, me. This moment expressed the depth for me of what the identity crisis can do. It can tear at a person's mind and soul and rip it apart. And they're forced to question everything that they believe to be true about them and this world that is around them. So there's this re- there's a reason that this kind of story accounts for so many of my personal favorite sci-fi films, much like you talked about with Ex Machina and Arrival. And that's because it is so raw and human in its exploration of this big idea around defining who we are and what that means for ourselves and those around us. I've always, always loved this kind of movie. and But honestly, Patrick, this time I was flat out floored in my most recent viewing. I, I don't know what it was that was different, but it hit me on a completely different level than it ever has. I've always said it was a favorite film, but this one elevated it to a place of just, I don't know, I, I don't want to use the M word, but it is... It is something that I feel has very few equals. I agree. I, I think the fact is it gets better with each viewing. When I finished it earlier this week, I remember prepping for the show and going, man, I really want to watch it again. Not because I felt like I missed something, but because I wanted to experience it again. And there aren't a lot of movies that do that for me. I think the movies that this may be something that I'm starting to understand about a really true five-star movie for me. It's one that's not just great on repeat, but it gets better with each viewing. Like I am able to revisit those same emotions, those same reactions that I have and discover something new. And I think that's why I love movies like Sing Street and Walter Mitty, because when I replay those movies, and I re-experience them, I do feel something pretty wonderful. If I cry, that crying doesn't go away. It doesn't get any less painful when I watch a really, really disheartening scene of a movie. And I still get those those goosebumps or those butterflies when I have a particular moment like, like in Sing Street where they're coming together for that very first song. And I think that Moon does that for me, where... I want to rewatch it because I want to experience, much like you mentioned on our Ex Machina episode, watching it from different vantage points. You know, watching it from Sam 1's point of view the first time and then experiencing it from Sam's too. And maybe even from Gertie's point of view a third time. It lends itself to just having a more complex movie experience than just being, hey, that was cool or, hey, that was a neat idea I tried to explore. Really, it's like, no. This is worth more than just discussion. It's worth experiencing, right? Absolutely. Well said. And I and I think that what I gravitated towards this time was, in light of Kubrick month, <laughs> the similarities in particular that we have to 2001. Ooh. 
particularly the the most obvious, the Hal and Gertie sentient being, but also the isolation of an astronaut, not even being able to communicate live with people back on Earth, the starkness of space, in this case the starkness of the moon, and even the color palette. I mean, if you look at everything, with the exception of Gertie, if you look at everything in that space station, it is white, clean, crisp, and it only gets dirty when the conflict happens, when we get the big big aha moment. Oh my gosh, there's an accident, and now we have Sam 1 and Sam 2 existing simultaneously. If you watch, you'll see just more grittiness. You'll start more more shots of Sam 1's barracks where there's things that are just messy everywhere, um, you know, burning himself and having the uh, the model just up upended at one point. It just gets dirtier and dirtier. And I think that that's, that's purposeful. But at the very beginning, everything is very sterile. Everything is very mm-hmm. clean. It's white. And I really think Duncan Jones wanted us to make that attachment because of the fact that 2001 emits some of, some of these same ideas, not as obvious, but some of the same ideas. That is a fantastic point. And it, and it was really not one that I had picked up on. Um, but even the image that I used for the show on this episode on the website is this image of Sam sitting in a corridor and it's, it's shot in a way that is very reminiscent of the 2001 famous corridor shot, uh, the angles and just the geometry of the scene. It, it reminds us of that scene where Dave is walking down that kind of spinning aisle. And so you're right. I mean, color, the architecture, all of it is definitely like 2001. And so he very much was using the Hal and Gertie. And we're going to go into depth on that later. I know, but that you're right. I think he's definitely got an homage going to 2001. And what's interesting is I think that there's a film that came later that kind of did the same thing in many ways to moon, even though it was also piggybacking off its own universe, maybe unknowingly kind of pulled some stuff from moon and that is blade runner 2049 for me i was blown away by some comparisons frankly that i picked up on and i had never and maybe that's why this viewing was so different for me because it's the first time i've seen it since seeing blade runner 2049 and just a, a tease of some of this that i'll go into more later but clones equaling replicants is a very comparable theme throughout this film that you could you could take away they have a limited lifespan. They're both being used as slaves or, or for a purpose by corporations uh, of humanity. And they both have implemented memories that are used to control them. The relationship between Sam and Tess and or Sam and Gertie is very similar to some of the things we see between Kay and Joy in Blade Runner 2049. Or I wrote down Kay and his memories um, because Tess is essentially a memory for him at this point. Uh, watching the messages with his wife and daughter, it, it was a scene that kind of triggered this for me big time. Because when you when you see this and you know the twist, it, it is much different. It reminded me of what we dealt with in the Blade Runner series. Because if a clone experiences real human emotions, even if they are not based on truth, this question is directly asked in Blade Runner 2049. 
does that diminish or the emotions that are felt or does that discount the emotions that are felt? Because it is Sam's reality and therefore it's what he feels. And so, man, just the, the, the kind of meshing together of these two movies in my head has made this amazing like super movie for me (laughs) (laughs) a super movie it made me think that maybe moon exists somewhere in the blade runner universe i would be thrilled to hear that (laughs) (laughs) i could i could i could see that happening i actually only i did so just like you i picked up on one thing that reminded me of blade runner 2049 but all of your comments just forced me to want to watch 2049 again I mean, I know it was like your film of the year mm-hmm. and grateful that we share a voodoo library because I can just queue it up right after the show and it's, you know, ready to rock and roll. So it might not happen tonight because I'm two hours ahead and I need to get sleep. Although tomorrow's a holiday. I mean, OK, now you're making me debate it and I'm not going to do that. So it'll get put on my watch list again at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later. So I can put those two comparisons together. Speaking of comparisons, I want to talk about sam rockwell's performance specifically i I raved about him earlier and i want to just continue to do that because Mm -hmm. this time around i i focused more on his performance because the first time i watched this and i got the reveal of him being a clone i was more focused on oh okay great he's going to be playing himself talking to himself so i'm going to be looking for some ways in which the camera tries to editing mistakes essentially essentially yeah because i i always look for that when i watch movies that use one actor to play two i see are they going to put them in the same scene together are they ever going to touch are they going to shake hands or what's going to happen there well this viewing i completely forgot about that like i actually intended to do that and i forgot about it because of how great his performance was not only the way that he portrays Sam one and two, but watching them dialogue with each other. I actually did a little bit of research to get behind the movie magic. And Duncan Jones talks about the, I wish I remembered his name, but there was a, there was a body double that was used in a lot of the scenes, mostly, mostly in the scenes where if you, if you look at some of the cuts, you'll see that, um, when Sam two is putting his hand on Sam one's shoulder, you don't see his head, obviously. Um, but Sam Rockwell actually used an earwig in his ear to hear his own dialogue repeated back to him so that he could react to it. And then the body double was just off screen so that he could actually emote or act toward him. So doesn't spoil the performance because ultimately it's Sam Rockwell doing it. But I wanted to ask if there was a scene or a moment where you felt like this was heightened. Oh, yeah. I think that we both probably gravitated toward the same scene the most for this. I actually wrote the words down. I love the ping pong scene so much. And so it's it's the ping pong scene for me. I mean, this is the time when you're right. There is a seamlessness to the way that this is shot anytime the two Sams are on screen. And I, too, like you, can't help but want to find the flaw. Not because I think that it makes the movie bad if there is one, because this is an incredibly challenging thing to pull off, but because I just, it's a natural thing to to look for. And when you can't find it, you quickly just stop looking. And, And that's what I did as well. And this ping pong scene is so great. 
for me. Uh, there's a, gr- a lot of interactions between them, but for the most part, you see them in the frame together, I think, the most during this scene. And the way that they interact and what they're interacting about playing this game against himself um, is so heightened because of this conversation that they're having. It's such a different Sam. They are 100% coming from different places at this point. Sam 1 knows the game better than Sam 2 and is able to be successful at the game better than Sam 2 because he's been doing it so long. And the way that the scene kind of inspires Sam 2 to want to practice to get better, you can see all of this play out and so much of it is not in the dialogue. Yes, they say these things, but when you see a Sam Rockwell and a Sam Rockwell, and of course, one of them is much healthier than the other as the film it goes on and the other one is like completely degrading right so you can you can tell that difference apart but the mannerisms are unique and i just don't know how a person does this it is that's why we call it an amazing performance because when you can look at it and say i don't think everybody could pull that off i really truly do not think everyone could pull this off and, and do it in the same convincing way that Sam Rockwell has done. And, and you know, maybe naming the character Sam was intentional. I, I wonder that sometimes because it's so difficult for this. It probably makes it a little bit more simple yeah. to just call it Sam. I agree. And I think that I watch this performance and it makes me forget that it's one person because of the way in which they connect. And that particular scene does more than just what you mentioned. It also satisfies the editor in me because so many times I'm like, oh, yeah, he's not going to cross the middle of that ping pong table because that's the that's the split screen. And then he crosses it. And, he, and then I go, okay, no way is he going to touch Sam on the shoulder or whatever. And then he does it. And I'm like, wait, okay, now what's going on here? How are they doing this? And it, that's the that's the moment for me where, wow, became the one word takeaway i was like okay i am sold and moon i forgive you or please forgive me for doubting how amazing you can actually be and and i think that's a testament to not only sam rockwell as as the actor but duncan jones and his visual effects people Mm -hmm. for really being meticulous and making sure that the editing wasn't a distraction like i felt like every shot was purposeful not only to keep that movie magic intact, but to also amplify the drama of each individual moment. I, lo- I saw so many different moments where both of them were reacting to each other, and it didn't feel like a person was here and a person was there, and they were talking at each other. It really felt like they were immersed in a conversation. And that's really difficult to do when one person is doing the job of both. Because it's like you said... You've got different mannerisms that you've developed. I wonder, I'd love to sit down with with Sam Rockwell and go, okay, did you like spend half a day being Sam 1 and half a day being uh, being Sam 2 and like write that down and say, okay, these are the did you create a backstory for these guys in order to give them differential character traits because by the end of the movie, I couldn't I, I I could distinguish between the two, which is weird to say that. <laughs> so it's the opposite, you know? Yeah. The the other moment that really drove it home for me personally, where I felt that difference in their mannerisms and in their personality um, on a deeply emotional 
level was this was almost my CP. And it was when Sam one calls home and learns that Tess has died um, toward the end of the film. And he realizes really quickly that he's talking to his 15 year old daughter who has now grown up. And then he hears his own voice in the background. And I don't know that I've ever noticed this before, but it is Sam Rockwell's voice saying who's on the phone or or something like that she calls out to dad and that freaked me out dude i'm not gonna lie i was like the the extra thought of thinking about sam bell prime <laughs> like on earth and just oblivious to the fact that you know his clones are up here and what all this stuff is going on that is a whole nother conversation that i can't even i would love to have uh, um but anyway it, it shocked me a bit and side note, this is also where the screen changes and we get a beautiful, beautiful shot. Probably one of the most memorable shots of the film where the rover comes into focus on the lunar surface and, it, and it's like a horizon shot of space with the Earth out in the distance because he's calling, you know, the Earth. He's knocked down the tower and he's able to do that now. Um, but it's a simple yet emotionally crushing moment. And what's so cool about the way the performances work is we have to go through it twice. Because Sam one is on the phone or not the phone, whatever he's talking to his daughter and he learns and we see him react to that. But then he has to explain what just happened to Sam two. And then we get Sam two subtly reacting to the same news, but he handles it in a very different way. Like the way that his facial expressions are and the way that his body language is held. It's completely two different people, but they are experiencing the same technically the same emotion regarding the exact same connecting human beings in their lives. It's fascinating and just, it's brilliantly done. It really is. And it, it makes me wonder, we can't cover all this stuff in, in, in this episode. Uh, but I, I wonder if when a Sam is awakened because memories are implanted into Sam. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, each time in when there are no problems with with the lunar company that when a sam dies and a new sam comes in the memories that have been compiled up to that point just get implanted into the new sam and so he continues to move i i don't know that's a wonderful idea i if that's in there then i missed it i need to watch it yet again because i have not picked up on that i say that because when when sam gets access to the to the videos by uh, when Gertie gives him the passcode and he gets access to the security footage you see him holding up a picture of his daughter significantly younger than the conversation where we see his daughter at like I guess she's like five or six now granted it's been three years so that picture could have been of a three-year-old so I'm I'm not quite sure on that if I'm just wondering if his memories are a continuation. I don't think they are because of the fact that he thinks he's just started mm-hmm. his three years each yeah. time. Yeah, my understanding is that it's the same three-year period he's reliving. He's reliving, he tests leaving and whatever, and like it's that same three-year lifespan that is happening every single time he's reborn. Okay. Uh, but also, real quick, I wanted to mention that in light of the idea of him being two people— my daughter and my kids watched this with me for the first time. And my daughter said, even when it's literally the same person, guys always end up fighting. And I just, I chuckled at that because it was an interesting observation that she was having. 
you know, that even it's it's one guy and he still can't help but fight with himself because he's in this situation. <laughs> that asks the philosophical question in and of itself, like, can you deal with yourself when you're alone? <laughs> even if you're not alone, it's just, oh my gosh, the ideas just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you meant, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the relationship between Sam 1 and Sam 2 because that's what it ends up becoming. That was a big surprise for me is not two individuals living life as clones on a ship or on a on a space station, lunar station, whatever it's called, but they actually develop this really interesting relationship, almost like they're brothers. That that's kind of what I compared this to because it felt like two brothers who were almost 3 years apart in age finding common ground in this singular mission i look at sam one and how he responded to being a clone and he was like nope i'm not the clone and then sam two is a little bit more reserved and he's almost just kind of pissed off about it like dang it i'm a clone but they both lend themselves to accomplishing a new mission which is we got to figure out what's going on here. And so Sam 2's motivation exercises itself when he starts going to look for the secret room. And of course, Sam, one, Sam 1's like, I've searched this place up and down. I know this place like the back of my hand. You're not going to find it. And so you have this relationship with them that is more optimistic, pessimistic, driven, passive. And I love that it's all really centered on the fact that of where they are in their life in this movie. So you got Sam one who's at the end of a three year stint, at least in his mind, you got Sam two, who's at the beginning of this. And I think what's great about Rockwell's performance in light of this relationship is that you get the pessimistic side of someone who has been in this thing for so long. And he's like, look, I'm going home. I don't really care that you think you're a clone. I'm not a clone. I've lived this life for three years. Even if that's true, I'm done with this. And then you've got Sam, too, who's like, no, we've got to figure this out. And it really makes perfect sense that two human beings, one who is seasoned versus one who is brand new, they represent kind of the the pessimistic and optimistic side of, of human beings. You've lived in something long enough, you've lost a lot of hope versus mm-hmm. the other side of that, which is lived out in a more aggressive nature with Sam, too. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like that. That I mean, because the the difference in their ages may only be three years, but essentially it's you know a baby and a, a grandpa mm-hmm. in terms of the the totality of their lifespans. I actually wanted to ask you: <laughs> Would you rather have a limited lifespan or be kept unaware as the Sams are? So, I'm sorry. If you had a limited lifespan, would you rather know about it or would you rather be kept unaware? Ooh. I think I would rather be kept in the dark because I think there's you can make the argument that if I knew I only it's the same kind of argument. If I only had six months to live, what would I do? But the thing is, does that really say a lot about our actual motives because we're driven by a finite time or are we more honest with ourselves about not knowing when we are dying to live our lives to the fullest or however it is. I wouldn't want to know. 
I would like to have my life handed to me. You could call it fate. You call it whatever. But I like the fact that I would feel like I'm in control at least at some point. I mean, I, that I, I'm not in control because I die at some point. But if I knew that I had a limited lifespan, I would look at mm-hmm. my life differently maybe not positively or negatively. I think I might look at it more selfishly like, well, if I've only got three years, then I could just, you know, get arrested or rob a bank or something like that. Yeah. I also think that it takes away some of the sincerity of life. I mean, yes, we like, I don't know when I'm going to die. It could be tomorrow. Hopefully not because we get this podcast going and, and that's a good thing. And obviously some other important things in my life, like my family, um, but the fact is, I don't know when I'm going to die. And so in that regard, because I know it could be tomorrow or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, there's a lot more value to that. So yeah. I feel like not knowing is a lot better for me and for my creator in that regard. Or in this case, it'd be lunar. Right. Well, because, I mean, I'm not talking about in this scenario. I'm talking about in general. In, in life. In ge- yeah, yeah. So... I'm not- Go ahead. My point, I, I agree with you um, in that it, it is, to me, it would be an incredible burden to carry to know that I had a limited lifespan. And there's no way I would ever be able to enjoy things to the fullest because I would be constantly thinking about everything in my life as a ticking clock and everything as checking a box off of a list. And so nothing that I did would be having the same emotional impact because it would be just another step along the way. Whereas without knowing, as you mentioned, you're able to give your all to every single thing you do, whether it is something that's on your bucket list or whether it's to taking out the trash. And in doing so, you can find so much more joy in life that way. So I I definitely think I would rather be kept unaware as the Sams are and so I find that an interesting exercise to think about because, you know, because of the way the film plays out, we might be drawn as an audience to think, oh, these they're being wronged. Like, how dare they be kept in the dark about all of these things and be kind of lied to? But in reality, maybe this is not maybe this is the best way to handle it if you're going to have clones. Well, the, OK, you just said it. If you're going to have clones at that point, you've got con- you as the creator, as Lunar have control over their lives. Now, okay, all the immorality that's taking place and all the the unethical stuff that's taking place by using a person's DNA to clone all these other people without their permission. Again, we don't know. Maybe in the end sequence with the the voiceover stuff, we find out a little bit. But up until that point, we don't really know that Sam Prime hasn't given permission to let his DNA be used to clone these guys. Maybe he, maybe it was his permit. Maybe it was his idea. Maybe he said, they said, Hey, you're a great candidate. Why don't you spend three years here? We'll capture all this data and then we'll use you, use your DNA to continue the project. And he's like, okay, as long as I get to go home to my family, because that's what we're assuming is that the Sam that we hear on the phone is the original Sam, like not the, not the not a just a clone because they never let the clones go. So in that regard, within that space of of ethics or whatever, I think Lunar is completely justified in leaving these clones in the dark because that's what they are. They're not real people, at least not to Lunar. They are machines. They are worker bees. They have no. And this is what the film questions. It asks that question: 
do they have value as human beings, even though they weren't birthed from a mother? And one of the big ideas that I gleaned from this has to do with being made versus versus being grown and that wrapping itself up in identity and self-understanding. And the, the question I wanted to ask you was how important as a human being, or I guess in this case as just a living entity, is it important in knowing your, I'm putting in quotes, origin story, in knowing that you have a past? Because as an omniscient audience, when we find out that these guys are clones, they don't have a past. They have memories of a past of someone who's not them implanted in them, but they're, they don't have a past. But the moment that they wake up, that's the start of their life as a clone. And so how does that sit with you? Do you feel like there is value in, like, do you feel like they have value because even if they don't have a start, even if they don't have a, a place that they came from outside of a test tube? Well, I mean, yes, I do, because they are a living biological being. And in some regard, they have free will and choice. Because obviously Sam 1 exercises that in a way that the past Sams have not done. In what he learns about himself and moving forward, sorry, Sam 2, um exercises that in realizing what he has discovered. Uh, and these Sams start doing things that other Sams have not done. And so because of that, they're not programmed. They have a level of decision-making that is different. And this is where that Void Runner 2049 comparison came into like hardcore for me in one way. And that is a difference in the fact that K being a replicant and having memories implanted of someone else is very different than a Sam having memories implanted of essentially himself. So whereas a replicant is a created biological android being with something else's memories or faked memories, they are not their own. This is a copy of a person. So those memories are realistically correct. This memory happened to this biologically DNA wise, this body, not this mental body. And so my point is that I think they do have value. And I think that whatever origin story they know to be true is plenty well enough for them. Okay. So let me ask you this as a, as a, as a scenario, if you died and your memories were implanted in a clone of yourself, you'd be you would see that as okay but if your memories were implanted into somebody else who continued to live your life as a different person but with your memories that's that's not you wouldn't jive with that that i just think that there is definitely a difference in a clone and something that is not a clone of you having your memories yes see, that's, i think that that's, that's what i'm saying is still it, your memory so just because it's your memory the fact that you are a clone justifies that in saying that you have value as opposed to another clone that had your memories instead i i just don't i don't what i think is happening here is there's an elevation of as long as the memories are yours whether you're real or came from a mom or came from a test tube as long as they were yours at some point 
in a previous iteration of yourself, that makes it, you know, as a clone, you have that kind of value. Mm -hmm. But if you're somebody else, if they cloned like me and they implanted your memories into me, I guess I don't have that same kind of value because they're not my memories. I think of it as the famous poem, two paths, diversion of wood. Which one are you going to take? Or the multiverse in the comics world. You have multiple versions of the same character who may have the same exact timeline and the same exact memories and the same exact life up until a certain point, and then they go different routes. Mm -hmm. That's what a clone is, essentially. <laughs> okay. Okay. I I guess. I Into think... the Samverse. I, I don't know. Sam Merman. I'm, no. <laughs> I'm going to agree to disagree with you on that one because – Clones are physically created, purposefully created things from a biological prime. They're not iterations of something that somehow miraculously exists in a different universe. So I think that, that that's where I'm, I'm coming from, is that you have this company who has created clones of an original prototype, and the only thing that makes them valuable to you, it sounds like, is the fact that those memories from that original prototype just continue to exist in them and that otherwise it wouldn't be the case. That's that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm understanding. I'm saying it doesn't matter because everything that happens once they are born is their choice. They are their own entity at that point. And so what they come with baggage-wise, what they start with doesn't matter because they can act on it completely differently. So... If a clone is made of me from this day forward, that clone may not become a podcaster, may not stay a podcaster. Maybe mm -hmm. it changes its mind because I change my mind all the time and it becomes uh, someone who loves doing Twitch and streaming video games because I also love that. Maybe that's what their focus becomes. It doesn't, to me, mean they have any less value because their origin story is the same as mine. It changes because they have free will to act on it okay. differently. So let's let's talk about Tess's role in all this, okay? Because she seems to be the, and I'm not going to use this punfully, but she serves as the primer of emotion for for Sam. She is his anchor. She is what keeps him going for three years. Essentially, she is his memory implant. She is the thing that keeps him grounded. And I guess it's due to the fact that he can't go anywhere. Like he's the choices he makes are only limited to what he can do on the moon and that his sole motivation is to get back home. So I guess her role would be a lot more complicated if he had a lot more available choices based on what you're telling me. Oh, yeah. I don't think her role is complicated at all. She's a tool to me. She is there to provide Sam motivation through his loneliness, and she is there to provide purpose as to why he's there in the first place and why he's on this three-year contract. Yeah. And for Lunar, she is nothing more than a tool used to evoke those reactions by Sam and honestly just keep this illusion alive and get him through three years of life so he can do the job yeah. and then even, start over. Like she is, she is absolutely a tool. Right. So as even a character. so, even though. And so I guess I see where you're coming from because he, when he finds out that it's all a farce, that's when he begins to change. That's when he begins to diverge that path. Going back to your, your, your poem analogy, 
he goes down that other path because the thing that has kept him on the first path has now been changed. It's now no longer real. It's now no longer accurate. And so he takes the path that moves him to eventually, with Sam 2's help, um, well, he doesn't get to go home or go back to Earth, but a version of himself does. And so I guess there's right. some resolution with that. I guess what I'm getting at is if, if Tess didn't exist, like if he had no contact with her, would he potentially... The thing that changes him is the fact that he finds out that he's a clone. So all of that, if, if none of that ever changed, then he would never diverge from that path. So I think it goes back to us talking about not necessarily when we die, but I think if Lunar, their plan continued to roll itself out, he would never make any different decisions because of the memories implanted in him. Like Tess is always going to be his anchor. And until something else happens, until a big drastic change happens where he makes that discovery, he was always just going to go home and continue and continue and continue. And I just wonder if because he has that starting point of her, I think it was because of that drastic change, that realization, that self-discovery by accident, that's what changed him as opposed yes, to, as opposed that's to, correct. you know, I don't know if that necessarily makes him more human or more valuable. I think he's still, Personally, I think he's still a clone and his life will continue on as Charlie or whatever he calls himself. He's no longer Sam because his identity is no longer connected to the things that he's connected with, his late wife and his daughter. I mean, who knows what mm -hmm. happens after that. But, And I think that's where Duncan Jones succeeds in making it kind of ambiguous, like what happens at the end. Uh, I guess we get the assumption that his that he basically whistleblows and that Lunar is now done for. So that hints that maybe Sam Prime didn't know that that was going on, but I don't know how that would be the case. So. Well, it ends fantastically because it ends realistically with the talk show host saying he's either a wacko or an illegal immigrant. So either way, they're considering him lesser than, no matter what. Um, he, he can't win. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful little kind of satirical nod <laughs> at how the world works and and i do i love that it's ambiguous it's a lot like ex machina and the idea of what happens after it doesn't matter like going through that transformation i mean it's fun to think about that mm -hmm. that is awesome but what matters is watching someone go through that kind of awakening mm -hmm. in this regard you know in this sense whether it's blade runner or ex machina or you know an and robot essentially or or this as a clone um, it's just being able to make those decisions. Yeah, I, I agree with you, though. It is definitely that catalyst of becoming aware of a change in his situation. And 99 out of 100 times, it's not going to result in a different pattern. Yeah. But if there's a chance that it can, then there is free will there. Right. And I think that the big idea that comes from this, that Duncan Jones is trying to articulate, is that there's a level of empathy that exists with every character in this from Tess to Sam one to Sam two. And then eventually to Gertie. And that was a big surprise to me. And I wanted to talk a little bit about his role in the movie. The first time I saw this, I was like, Hey, that's fun. He's like, how, you know, he's got that real nice 
tone. He's got that just that real monotone type of thing. And Kevin Spacey does a great job voicing the character of Gertie. I love the name Gertie, by the way. Um, I think Case is probably my favorite robot name at this point. <laughs> and the fact that um, that Gertie, I don't even think it stands for anything. I think it's just Gertie. Um, it, it's never said. But that was the biggest standout to me, not only in comparing it to 2001, but specifically why it stood out. Because initially... I was thinking, oh, this is Hal for the new millennium. But I read a quote by from Duncan Jones in an interview, and he says that Gertie and Hal were obviously one of these references to 2001. And all these things that we were trying to do to make people really expect a certain thing and then go in a different direction with it, we tried to do that in a number of different places, and Gertie was one of those. He wanted to show the fact that Hal who started out being this kind of helper, this assistant, was really given an ulterior motive that his ultimate goal was to make sure that the mission was successful in spite of the human element. And what I saw is that Gertie was always, even if it didn't seem like it, was always concerned about the life of Sam in whatever instance Sam existed. Because it, to me, I think, had Sam, of course the movie wouldn't have existed at this point, but had he not died in that uh, accident in the rover, I think that if the mission was more important, Gertie would have found a way to eventually kill him in some way and maybe he did at the beginning because he prevented sam too from from leaving the uh from leaving the space station so what i saw was that you have a, a robot like gertie who was really more concerned about the man than the mission and that was a surprise to me and really a pleasant surprise and to see how that evolved over the course of the movie yeah no, i agree i i definitely resonated a lot with this relationship this time around in fact it was probably the most that I was into a relationship in the film. Um, I, for some reason I had forgotten that Gertie was good. Uh, I guess I haven't watched it in a while. And so when we were watching it, I was waiting for him to be evil. And I was kind of watching how my kids reacted. And it's probably because I just watched 2001 twice recently since I've seen this movie. And I was thinking about how, and, and we get that setup for the kind of switcheroo to happen later on where initially we hear Gertie over uh, um, over the air talking to someone back on Earth that Sam is not aware of. He, he kind of listens in and he's like, what is going on? And he kind of freaks out. And you realize, you know, sentient computers are scary. Sam has to ask him permission to go outside. Gertie's like, no, you're not going outside. I'm not letting you do that. And so we get this very direct references to 2001 where those same instances are of a computer that is trying to inhibit or or hinder the human's progress for a negative reason or what will ultimately become a negative reason. But in this, Gertie does clearly become a friend. I mean, it happens over and over again. And I think, you know, there, there were several instances of this where it started to show up. One, you know, at the beginning, he tells Sam that he hasn't reported his recovery alive to Lunar and that he's here to keep him safe. 
And I remember asking the question to myself, I was like, is he? Is this just, is he, is he tricking us? Like, is he just trying to set Sam up to believe a certain thing? Or is he just trying to wait out his lifespan? But then you really know he becomes a friend when he enters that password. So that Sam 1 can see the past video messages that his clones have sent and understand what happens to the dying clones. Because Gertie is the one who reveals this information and he learns about the incineration and stuff. And so for me, the whole thing comes full circle when Gertie is willing to be erased and rebooted so that his memories can't be seen by Lunar Industries. And this is, again, a direct comparison to Hal, who at the end of the film has to be forcefully deleted and rebooted in order for him to get away safe, right, and and be able to move on. In this case, it's more like the Joy reference from Blade Runner 2049, because the AI is making a choice to die or to kill itself, um, to save the human character or the more human-like character. And, and it was just so, so fascinating to me. Um, I wondered if you had any thoughts, though, on why he might do this. Because, I mean, what you say is true. Everything is absolutely correct. He even says... Helping you is what I do. Even when Sam calls out that this goes against Gertie's programming, do you? What do you think his motivation is for doing that? Because he's making a choice as well. Empathy and history. Okay. If there's one person or one entity in this entire universe, outside of Lunar's bigwigs, that has a relationship, an ongoing, continuous relationship with Sam, whether it's Sam One, Sam Two, Sam Twelve. It's Gertie. Gertie knows the history. Who knows how long this has been going, this mission, this, quote, three-year mission over and over and over again. But Gertie's the only person that has had an ongoing relationship with each of these Sams. And if it's as if you say that it's a three-year period that starts over every time, different things happen throughout this whole mission. I mean, take the... Take the driftwood village that's being built. Sam mentioned to Sam too, it was here before I got here. I did the the church and the you know the goodwill station or whatever it was. So we start getting hints that of of what's about to be discovered or or what we know is that previous Sams existed. But for Gertie, I think part of his AI, maybe unintentional or intentional, is that he learns to be empathetic, and that's what goes back to that line: "Helping you is what I do." He was programmed to help. And if help means to keep him sane when he's going through something like this or to kill him and replace him with another, I think he errs on the side of the former because he sees the hurt that Sam, one and two, in their own ways are facing. This is the first time that Gertie has experienced the revelation that these two characters are having, that they recognize who they are. When in the beginning or up till now none of that has ever happened and i think gertie's learning that i think he's learning empathy he's learning friendship and it may be through the observations of sam with tess through the telecom and how he reacts emotionally i love the fact that we have emoticons to represent mm-hmm. gertie's, gertie's emotions gertie's emotions it's fantastic and it, it's a subtle way of saying that gertie feels in some way because he yep. can't because the whole point of an ai in this movie is to be 
stagnant, to have really no emotions. And so Duncan Jones puts these little emoticons here to give us that hint that, no, Gertie is emotional. He may not show it. He may not have a dramatic vocal presence, but he does feel for Sam and he wants to help him. And I think it's not really a surprise to me that he ends up punching in the password for him. It's not really revealed that much beforehand, but it makes sense up to that point. At that point, it does. I mean, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's a it's a wonderful character arc, honestly, to watch Gertie from the start to the finish, and it's just such a, a awesomely drawn character that plays with our knowledge of past science fiction films to make him even more rich and uh, interesting. Yeah, you know, one of the things I really like though about it is the the science and the design aspect. So so it's heavily done with physical effects. A lot of that was due to budget constraints um, because this is not an expensive film. It was Duncan Jones's first feature. And uh, so they had to do a lot with more. But things like the rover design and the lunar machine, the harvester that is churning up rocks, I just love the way those things look. And they seemed tactily like realistic the base the way the base looks um i was gonna say a couple things one is the energy crisis the idea of what is happening here is that there's an energy crisis and there has been a brownout uh, in the world and the food shortage and cars burning fuel to run um because of cars burning fuel to run and there's fusion energy that is via uh, being harvested via moon rocks and it supplies this element this helium three and that's what the planet earth is now using for energy um and one of the things that happened was uh scientists got a screening of this as part of a lecture series at nasa's space center and one of the uh one of the quotes from duncan jones about that screening he says he'd been reading online that we'd done this film about helium three mining this professor that asked them to come and that's something that people at nasa were working on so we did a Q&A afterwards, and they asked me why the base looked so sturdy, like a bunker, and not like the kind of stuff that they're designing that you would transport with them on a shuttle. And I said, well, in the future, I assume that you won't want to carry everything with you. You'll want to use the resources on the moon to build things. And a woman in the audience raised her hand and said, I'm actually working on something called Mooncrete, which is concrete that mixes lunar regolith and ice water from the moon's polar caps. So clearly, Duncan Jones has identified some potential elements uh, of, you know, industry changes that can happen in the future. And what that's one of the things that I love about sci-fi, man, that makes it the best for me, is when it is just realistic enough that I can believe fully that this thing can exist just all across the horizon. That it's, it's it may be... I don't want to put a number on it, but maybe like within my lifespan, I, I believe that these things could happen. And so Moon sells me on that completely. And clearly from this comment here at this NASA screening of the film, somebody was working on something very similar to what he imagined. And to me, that it screams successful idea in a film. Right. The tangibility of what the future could be, I think, gives cerebral sci-fi in particular the strength of of its stories and that what you just said reminded me a lot of a 
of a TV show that uh, I think you initially started watching this. This is a long time ago called Fringe. And it started out as a procedural drama that used the possibility of fringe science as its base. And as the series went on, it got a little bit more out there. But what I thought was a strength is that it pulled you in initially in its early seasons by saying, hey, this is something that's actually being talked about. This is, at least in theory, something that could come to fruition at some point in the future. Let's use this to help craft our narrative. So it gives a sense of human connection that, hmm, I'm thinking about the future. And, oh, yeah, that particular piece of science might actually exist. Um, And I think what Moon does successfully is just that. I can imagine a world where we are harvesting on the moon for minerals that we need to help earth survive and that there are people out there that live for three years and potentially you know with the the recent in the last couple of decades the the presence of cloning that is a possibility but the fact is duncan jones uses that just as a caveat just as a as a tool to really tell a bigger narrative that I think is a lot more emotionally connective than just science. Science is a connective piece, but I think it's just that. I think it's just a piece to what I think is the the stronger piece of the film, which is that emotional connection with the narrative and the human aspect of it, even though we're dealing with clones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're more human than human. True. Uh-huh. True. Did that replicate anyway. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to mention though, before we moved to connecting point or whatever, is that the score stuck out to me. Uh, Clint Manzel made this score, and and it is just fantastic. It reminded me a lot of Thomas Newman's score for Passengers. Just the way that it sounds, it it really evoked the same emotional tone. And obviously, his came much much later. But I wondered if maybe it had some sort of influence on him because. This one is great. It's great in the film. It's perfect. Um, it doesn't get heightened and bass pounding except for a couple of moments of really high tension, but it works just like it should in those times. And otherwise, it's pretty kind of piano based um, and lighthearted. And I really, really, really enjoy it. I even like listening to it on its own, which is a standout thing for me. Yeah, Passengers came to mind for me and the, the purposeful moments where things need to be more dramatic having some of those undertones, those bassy undertones, in particular when I think Sam One is going out to uh, look at the uh, the antenna or something like that right before he makes the phone call. I noticed that this time around, that, ah, this is different here. This is more dramatic, and it really accents that really well. It didn't feel distracting at all. It felt like it was very much a supporting actor in this. Well, let's get into our connecting points, unless you have something else. Um, I'll go ahead and start us off, if that's cool, because I started us off with a one more takeaway, and I might as well just keep that trend going. Mine was Sam One's realization that he's a clone. And I, I don't know how you couldn't connect with this moment. It was not only an aha moment, but it was also the moment where you started seeing him differently. Because it started asking the questions that we'd gone back and forth with earlier about does it matter that he's a clone? Is he a human? Does he have life and value because, you know, just because he has memories implanted in him? And it's as if Duncan Jones was prepping us for this moment. We have these handful of scenes where Sam is talking to his wife and it's giving us his backstory on him and her and this tension that exists in their relationship. So it makes that moment where he calls home 
uh, live, and I'll put that in air quotes, outside the station talking to his daughter as a teenager and finding out that his wife passed away and that he's essentially been replaced by yet another Sam. It's unknown whether it's the Sam Prime or just another one. Um, movie never says anything to confirm that, and I'm okay with that. I like that ambiguity. But man, that punches me right in the gut. Because it brings into question, what is my life before I woke up? What is my life? Does it does it matter? Does it matter what I do now going forward? And I think from that moment on, I was really saddened to know that even though he was somewhat satisfied, he still died. He never got to go back home. Um, now, Sam too did, and in a sense, I guess he did get to go home because, you know, they're the same. But I was, I was grieving that moment. I was grieving the fact that his realization of who he was and then walking through his story to the point of his death oh, just felt so heavy on me. Every reason for him to go home, every ounce of hope that he had that kept sustaining him while he was working up there died in that moment with him, isolated in that rover. And I believe that in that moment, he was ready to die as well. So maybe that's where the satis- maybe that's where the satisfaction comes from, is the fact that he kind of reconciled that. He worked through this whole grief. And maybe that was, this is something else that I don't want to go into, but I'm just thinking it could be a grieving process in rapid form over the next hour of the film where he's just accepting the fact that this is who he is. He's dying. He has really nothing else to to gain. And that him saying, I just want to go home was doing more than just saying, I physically want to go. I'm just ready to die. I'm ready to end my life because knowing what what's out there in reality I think would be worse than what I know right now and I think in some ways he was thinking about the fact that maybe he didn't like knowing that but he was okay with accepting it up to that point so it was a it was a hard and heavy hit for me and uh, it really made his death later on both cinematically satisfying and emotionally hurtful too (laughs) so I kind of grieved that a little bit um, yes, you're right. I completely agree that it had to be this, uh, even though I also really connected with Gertie this time around. Like I mentioned, I almost wanted to say his moment of sacrifice. Uh, but this scene is to me what the film is all about, and it really is amazing. And I, I kind of, I guess, maybe really focused in on the actual way that the scene plays out. Um, not so much the emotion of the character. I don't know. It's interesting. I loved hearing you talk about how you felt about Sam's realization. Um, whereas I was more re- reacting to it, um, in a sense. And the whole thing starts off by Sam one telling Gertie about how Tess left him for six months and moved back in with her parents and that he promised her he would change. And so we get that understanding of the motivation this specific thing and that first of all that kind of tore me up a little bit because we realized he's getting a he's being given a memory that intentionally is kind of hurtful Mm -hmm. and i don't love that and that's when we kind of learn and why he's there for these three years is because 
he has to do this and then get back to her. And he's got to change in this time frame. And then he asks Gertie about the messages he sends her and the ones that she sent him. And he says, Gertie, am I really a clone? And he questions it. And so we get that first moment of self-realization where you're asking that question. And I just kind of honed in on that big time, what that would be like. It makes me think of all the great scenes and all the films where this happens in Ex Machina, where an actual human being is ready to cut himself open because he's starting to question his own existence and how honestly this can truly happen to anybody. Like psychologically, you can get to this place if you are inundated with enough things that make you think they are that it is fact. And this surprisingly leads us to the truth like we talked about. Gertie explaining how the clone wake-up process works and then that Tess and Eve are just uploaded memories of the original Sam Bell. And it's his acting in this moment that completely brings me to tears, that realization of it and just – I think more than anything, I feel like he's reacting to the loss of his family, mm. the loss yeah. of the belief that this is really his wife and his daughter at this age than he is to the fact that he's a clone. I think that that's what it would be for me, mm-hmm. honestly. And – what made it so powerful for me is honestly that Gertie gets that crying emoji. It's only used once in the entire film. And this is when we see it. And then he puts his robotic hand on Sam's shoulder and he asks if he can make Sam a meal. And I was like, gosh, that is such a human response. You know, it goes to that, that idea of empathy that you said is defining for his kind of awakening for Gertie's choices because we equate that action of making someone a meal with comfort and with as a way to help someone heal or get through a painful situation. And so Gertie has done that and it's Gertie has become a real friend at this point. And the big ideas colliding here of Sam realizing he's a clone and not real and Gertie almost awakening to become real in the moment as a response to that just kind of blow me away both philosophically and then the emotion of the scene is there on top of it and it's it's just fantastic it is it is masterfully done by Duncan Jones and I love it yeah it's it's a movie that needs to be digested multiple times in order to capture everything that we've only touched on probably 20% of and and so I, I would just reiterate to anybody who is listening now why are you listening if you haven't seen this movie um, but even if you have go see it again and and really just absorb it because I think it's one of the best sci-fi films that we've had in the last 15 or 20 years well man thanks for a good conversation it's been enlightening and a lot of fun and um, I know that there's probably a lot more conversation that can be had. So where can people find you to continue the conversation? Uh, I can be found all over social media. You can find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film. You can find me in our awesome Feelin' Film Facebook group where there are links to in the show notes and on the website. Or you can just type in to uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Feelin' Film. Answer a couple questions and we'll approve you and you can join our conversation there and if you want more of 
My own thoughts, of course, like I mentioned earlier in this show, go download uh, by request. Check out that solo podcast and see if that's something that will keep you entertained as well in a, in a little bit of a different way. What about you, Patrick? Where can people continue talking to you online? I'm usually hanging out on Twitter and Facebook at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Be sure to at me if you want to talk to me specifically. I can best be found that way. I um, want to remind you to visit patreon.com now to vote for our September donor pick. It's going to be a Spielberg sci-fi movie. All these are great choices, and so we're going to be excited about talking about any one of them. And uh, next week, we're going to be releasing a bonus episode covering the premiere of Jack Ryan on Amazon. This is part of our August donor pick celebrating the Clancy universe when we covered Hunt for Red October, and we thought this would be a great way to kind of put an exclamation point on that. Next up is, wow, Primer. And this is going to be an interesting discussion. I have watched hmm. this, and I'll probably hmm. say it next week. I've watched this at least half a dozen times, and I still don't get it. I actually have maps and um, and infographics that help me get through the movie. I'll just say that. If you haven't seen it, there's a little sneak preview for you. It's it's out there, but it's really, really good. <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm not going to lie. I'm nervous. About the conversation? Yes. <laughs> it may be 12 minutes, okay? I don't <laughs> want... Or it could be five hours. I don't want people to think we're like completely ridiculously dumb. But man, this movie is... We're going to be dumb. And I'm okay with It's a challenge. It's a good challenge. Yeah. I'm excited for it, but it's it's also nerve-wracking. It was going to be either this or Coherence. And, you know, Uh, it's the same challenge. It's just in a different venue. (laughs) We'll do that one later. (laughs) Yes, we will. All right, everyone. Thank you guys for listening. And until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.